Lachlan Trust, each relationship matters, and we know that your relationship with money may be complicated and may need some extra love and attention. But where do you start? I'm Julie Beckham, the Financial Education Officer at Rockland Trust, and this is the No Shame in This Money Game podcast. What you should have done and could have done, didn't know and should have known, doesn't matter anymore. There's no use spending one more minute blaming or shaming yourself. Because really, with everything going on in the world right now, you don't have time to get down on yourself. And you don't deserve it. We're all in this together, starting now. And like I said, there's no shame in this money game. Well, welcome. We are so excited to be here today at the No Shame on This Money Game podcast. And I have to say, I am particularly excited today because I'm interviewing Janelle Espinal, who is the creator of Miss Be Helpful YouTube channel and the director of educational outreach at NextGen Personal Finance. And as we enter Financial Literacy Month, this is so exciting to have someone with so much experience and passion and with a great name like like Miss Be Helpful. So welcome, <laughs> Janelle. Thank you so much, Julie. Happy to be here. So what's really fun is that, and not all my listeners know this, is that my pseudonym is Miss Money because I developed a character who is a little bit frazzled about money who goes into elementary schools and teaches kids about money. And so when I found out that there was a Miss Be Helpful out there, I was like, Miss Money and Miss Be Helpful have to meet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank you. <laughs> Where did this come from, this this name and this initiative for you? Yeah, so actually it started right after college. I had a lot of credit card debt because I was one of those students who was fortunate enough to get a, a scholarship to college, you know, based on my academic records and uh, also demonstrated fi- financial need as well. So with my financial aid package, I was really lucky not to have to worry about taking out any student loans. But when I got to college, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to buy textbooks and a, a laptop and I'll need some clothes and shoes and I want to decorate my dorm room. And, you know, there's lots of social outings going on that I want to do, like go to the movies or go bowling. And so I just started to put all of those expenses on credit cards. And because I knew I couldn't really rely on my parents, my family is is a very low income family. And I knew that it was going to be more of a burden for me to call home and try to find money where it really didn't exist. So I thought I would rather take it upon myself to handle it. And and so I got a student credit card, then I got two student credit cards, then three student credit cards, and it just spun out of control. Since the Credit Card Act of 2009, credit card companies are not allowed to solicit on campus or hand out tangible gifts like t-shirts and frisbees. But that doesn't stop them from setting up stands at off-campus hangouts and handing out non-tangible items like coupons for a free sandwich or a coffee drink. For students struggling to pay for tuition with no monthly allowance from mom and dad, relying on credit cards can feel like the only option. I didn't really have any money mentors or guides to kind of talk me through those decisions and talk about money with me. So after I finally figured out how to set a budget and how to save and how to improve my credit score and I paid off all of my credit card debt, I was like, I really wish somebody had helped me. I wish somebody had talked to me about this stuff, taught me about it early so that I would have prevented all of those mistakes. And so then I wanted to just help other people. And so I went on YouTube and I started posting videos and I was like, I got to come up with a name that really sums up what I want to do and why I want to do it. And really at the end of the day, it was just being helpful to others in a way that I really felt like I didn't have that kind of help when I was coming up and when I was younger. 
That's so awesome. It reminds me of those like Little Miss books. I don't know if I'm dating myself, but like Little Miss Busy and Little Miss. <laughs> no, funny enough, when I was trying to think of a name, I couldn't. I was like not creative at all. I was writing down all these names. I was like, oh my goodness, these are terrible names. Like Money Mama. Oh my God, no. <laughs> and so I was like, I can't have these names. Like these are terrible. Like the Credit Queen. I was like, ew. And and so then I, I looked at, I actually looked online for all these little names and getting creative. And I saw Little Miss Helpful is one of those books. Oh, and right. I was like, I would love to be Little Miss Helpful, but I can't steal that. It's trademarked and copywritten. So what if I switch it up and say, Miss, be helpful? And then that's how it came to be. So you're not dating yourself at all. That was actually part of the inspiration. <laughs> oh, that's so great. And it really suits you. I mean, if anyone out there has, has seen Miss Be Helpful's YouTube channels, I mean, your energy and your passion and your your willingness to put yourself out there and your experience out there to help other people is, is really amazing. Part of our initiative at Rockland Trust is to make sure that consumers have a healthy relationship with money at any age. And, and doing that in fun and entertaining ways is part of our mission. And to see that you're doing this in a really engaging, entertaining way so that it's accessible to people. So my next question really is, how did you decide to partner with NextGen Personal Finance? Yeah. So actually, once I started posting videos on YouTube, a whole bunch of emails started coming at me, you know, people offering to work with me, to partner with me, to sponsor the channel, to buy the channel from me. It was insane. I was like, I did not expect this at all. I thought it was just going to be maybe a couple hundred people and me just forming a little community and, you know, helping each other, answering questions and, and, and inspiring each other. But it grew and it grew and it grew. And when I passed like 25,000 subscribers, that's when I think it kind of, you know, really started to pile on. And then I found out about a nonprofit. So then they reached out to me and GPF reached out to me and said, hey, we would love to put your videos on our website where everything is free and schools can go onto our website and find full curriculum, lesson plans, activities, games, tests, homework assignments, everything that a teacher would need to teach personal finance in middle school or high school. We have created it and, we're, and it's free on our website. We're not for profit. And I was like, wait, what? And then so I said, well, who's sponsoring this work? Like, I don't understand how you're paying to keep this free. And and um, and then I found out about the mission and the team and the, and one of the co-founders, Tim Renzetta, he essentially had a lot of success as an entrepreneur. And so he decided to create an endowment fund that would allow the funding of the nonprofit organizational work without any teachers, any school districts, any parents, students, no one ever having to pay. And I was just so inspired by him and the mission of the organization as a whole. And I said, you know what, it's about time that you know, I joined forces with another educational mission-oriented organization. And I love this one because I used to be a classroom teacher. And the target focus of this organization of NGPF is teachers and, and primarily focusing on, on giving them the materials they need to feel confident teaching, but also training them. Because you can't just give a teacher a curriculum and walk away and expect that they'll be confident to, to run with it. Like, they need the training as well because like me and so many other people – they never had a class about personal finance. So how are they supposed to teach it if they don't have the content expertise? If next-gen personal finance sounds familiar to you, you may remember that one of my former guests and financial literacy advocate Scott Guile referred to the organization when he spoke of resources teachers could use to get free professional development training and access learning materials for their classrooms. Check out Episode 7, Life Skills Learned at Home, to refresh your memory. That's what just drew me to the organization. And I've been part of the, the team for about two years now. 
NextGen Personal Finance has a mission, a very clear mission. Mission 2030, is it called? That's right. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we were, you know, kind of bidding around the bush a little bit in, in terms of the language for what, quite some time. Like the past few years I've been with the organization, it's the space of financial education and personal finance education is there are some people who are gung-ho about a requirement. And then there's another entirely separate camp of folks who are like, we can't say the word requirement because when you say the word requirement, it scares folks away and it, it takes away and it detracts from our mission of trying to get access to financial education for everyone. When you say the word requirement, it, it stirs up you know, controversy. And so we, we, we sense that. And because education is so localized in our country, state by state, it would really vary when we would travel to different states to offer training. Certain teachers would be like, we can't wait for this class to be a required class. Every high school needs to require personal finance. And then in another state, if you mention that, oh, goodness, everybody was up in arms. According to NextGen Personal Finance, only 18.4% of high school graduates nationwide are required to complete a semester-long class on personal finance. But as Janelli said, many of our nation's education requirements are localized by state and even by city or town. So if you think your city or town should be requiring a personal finance class as a high school graduation requirement, become an advocate and jump on NextGen Personal Finance's Mission 2030. And so we realized that because it's so varied, it's really hard to work towards a common mission because we don't have a common mission. Everybody's got different goals and different language and you know, and so we were like, we got to we got to simplify this and we have to make it clear that, you know, we actually do support a required personal finance class for a full semester. And we're not only do we support it, but we are going to make it possible for teachers and schools to be able to do this. Administrators, principals, superintendents need to not fear that there's going to be a price tag, that they don't have it in the budget, that they don't have the materials. None of that is necessary. We've got everything on our website for free. And so basically the the only piece missing was to, you know, put a stake in the ground and just stop being fearful of stirring people's feathers and just say, listen, the right thing to do is that to make sure that every single student in America, before they graduate high school and turn 18, before they're legal and able to go sign contracts for student loans and car loans and credit cards, before they are able to go make financial mistakes, they should 100% have taken minimum of 18 weeks of instruction in personal finance content so they can learn, you know, basics saving, checking, banking, budgeting, insurance, taxes, investing, credit, paying for college. I mean, it's so hard to fit it all into 18 weeks as it is, right? So imagine trying to cut that short or embed, you know, budgeting into a business class or something else. Like that's the way that it's taking form in so many states. And we realize like we just can't keep playing games. We got to get serious about our mission. So mission 2030 means by the year 2030, our vision is that every single one of the 50 states will have a full semester of personal finance and high school required for every student before they cross the graduation stage. It's amazing. And it is so essential. And it's probably the most common thing that I hear from the people that I work with, the groups that I work with, the students I work with. Why didn't I learn this? It seems as though it's something that everybody can agree upon, but it hasn't happened yet. So The fact that NextGen Personal Finance has supplied this training, all of this training, all of this material, all of it is free. It is such a huge step closer to achieving that mission. So now it's really about getting the word out. So what a great fit that you are with them right now because you have this audience. Yeah, and I mean, that's the important thing is that I always wanted to make sure that my platform was really about 
the education first and foremost, right? And so it, it's right. It's true. Like what you're saying is like, basically when the opportunity fell in my lap, I was like, it's actually perfectly aligned to my original vision and goals for creating a channel and putting together educational information and content for people. So yeah, I mean, I got really lucky. I never really imagined that my platform would grow that much or that I would eventually be able to make it my full-time career working as a financial educator. So, you know, I'm a lucky girl. (laughs) And you're also just passionate and great at what you do. Speaking of (laughs) that, you you know, you're choosy. You held out with this Miss Be Helpful, which was a hobby and a passion. And it feels almost like a calling. Like you want to be helpful. Like you wish you had this. You have this platform. You can do it. You have the time, the talent. And so you'll put this information out there, see what happens. And then as you got some offers to partner, you were selective. And I think that that reflects and maybe, and I'm making an assumption here, your financial values as well. So you have to be, although YouTubes that I've watched, you are very selective and minimalist on what you choose to buy, how you choose to spend your money. Can you talk a little bit about that style? And maybe, I don't know if you've linked it before about you being selective in your career and choices and being a little bit choosy in how you spend your money, but how has aligning your values with your money choices, which I think is really a a key part of financial education, behavioral science, behavioral economics, and how we think about money. How has that influenced the way that you've been able to deal with your money? Yeah, it's such a great point. And I think it just, not only is it a perfect reflection of how I handle my money, but it's also a perfect reflection of like my money journey. Because when I first started, I was just swiping and buying everything here, left and right. I was using the credit card to go shopping, to go hanging out, to go anywhere, Starbucks, to go to Ben and Jerry's, to go bowling, like the movies. Every time my friends wanted to go do something. And part of this is we can't ignore the fact that as a low income student, coming from an inner city urban environment and going to the campus of Brown University, which is where I was so fortunate to get a scholarship to go, I ended up surrounded by peers who were nothing like me in terms of socioeconomic status. Like most of them were from really wealthy families. Their parents would send them off to like Mauritius Island over the summers. And I'm like, wait, what? I never even knew that that was a place in on the globe. Like what? Like I just, it was just such a world that was outside of my comprehension and whatever I could, you know, never have imagined. So it opened my eyes, but it also was a very negative peer pressure in the same way, as much as it was a positive pressure in terms of my intellectual abilities and being able to really think about the way I'm using language and my writing skills. And I was, I have never been stretched so much mentally as I was there during during my tenure at Brown. But the, the reality is my financial habits were reckless because I was trying to keep up with all the other kids around me. And so that was the danger of not having financial education and not having been prepared with conversations about what to expect. What are the social pressures like that are you're going to experience and how can you prepare for them before you even get to campus? And I think those are critical conversations to have with low-income students, you know, who are going to go off to college and be around kids who are not just like them. Most students go to school, middle school and high school with students that are around the same socioeconomic status as them. And so it's going to be a really big culture shock if they're not prepared for that experience to shift. And so so that was one of the reasons that I was reckless. But at the end of the day, when I started off kind of being reckless like that, 
I quickly just dug myself into a hole. And then it took so much time for me to really learn how to get myself out of that situation. I had to read books about personal finance, understand what it takes to save money, the mental behaviors, the mental thought process and the physical behaviors that I had to shift to start saving and to start prioritizing budgeting and stop using the credit cards like willy-nilly, you know, and really start focusing on a future financial goal that I had. And so once I fixed my credit score, paid off the debt and got really serious with a tight budget, I did a complete like total, you know, turnaround in, in my life and my lifestyle and my beliefs about money. And so that was reflected throughout my entire lifestyle. Like I started to be more minimal about what I was eating and more selective about what I was consuming, more selective about who I was spending time with and if they were really adding value to my life. You know, the way that the lens through which I looked at every aspect of my life became the same lens that I was looking at money through, which was really you don't need to take the money that you earn and go crazy. You need to make a small number of smart decisions and be very consistent with those decisions. Paying yourself first, investing obviously being responsible with any bills and debt that you have and making sure that you're always saving. I mean, putting money aside for, for fun and for your, you know, your wants is awesome and super important. But at the end of the day, you can only really do that if you have your house in order and all those other aspects. So once I realized that, I was like, oh, so if I just apply the same philosophy of like having a clear system to what I eat and to how I exercise and to what I watch and what I read and to who I spend time with, like my entire life pretty much shifted. And I Honestly, 10 years ago, if you would have asked me what my life would be, I would never have imagined it would be the life that I live today where I'm mostly plant-based in my diet. I exercise a lot. Like I live in a very minimal apartment. I'm just such a, it's just a different life than what I envisioned for myself. And the way that I grew up is so different from how I live now. And I think it's because I re-evaluated my values and being able to transform money to 100% definitely was, I would say, I guess, the catalyst for being able to reinvent the rest of my life. That is transformational and amazing to hear because it did. It bled into all parts of your life. How did that affect you, like, culturally and your family? I mean, in America, we, you know, we don't talk about money in our families, but then you break it down and different cultures talk less or differently or use money differently. So how did that affect your, your family relationships or did it? It did. It definitely did. And I think at first it was a bit more negative because I think people just, it was just a clash of belief systems. Like, you know, my, a lot of my family members have the, still have the mentality that I had both previously to my, you know, financial transformation, which is that if you make money, you should be able to enjoy it. You work really hard and, and your money is meant for you to spend it. So as soon as money comes in, it's immediately going out and it's really hard for that behavior shift, for that behavior to shift without your mindset shifting first. For me, I had read so much and watched so much videos and I consumed so much content that my mind shift had already happened. And so then when my behavior started to change, my family was confused because they skipped the step. They were trying to like, you know, be like copying behaviors and match and, and learn from what I was doing, but they hadn't adjusted their mind shift yet. And you can't skip steps and you can't just jump from, you know, I want to do this to I'm doing it. You have to do the mental work first. You have to truly change your beliefs and really reflect and, and criticize your own beliefs and ask yourself, why do I believe that? Is that really true? Is that really something that is a fundamental core part of my values and my belief system? Or is it something that I have been socialized and brainwashed to believe? And so I think that 
the more conversations that started to happen and as they started to see me posting videos on YouTube and the channel started to grow, that's when I think the shift started to happen where my family would be like, hey, can you teach me about like what the options are in my retirement? Can you just come over and look at my retirement package? Because I've been confused about it for a long time and I just haven't started. And because I keep putting it off and, and I want you to help me. And those moments of like, you know, my older brothers and my older sisters who are, they're all older than me and so successful, right? They're like career men and career women who are just brilliant and reaching out to their little sister because I'm the youngest girl of, of out of five girls, I'm the youngest girl, but there's nine of us. And so there's, I have eight siblings, five of them are older than me and three of them are younger than me and I'm number six in line. So to have five older brothers and sisters some of them be able to come back and ask me for, for my, you know, opinion and for guidance. Like that was really eye opening for me. And I realized like, okay, I'm onto something because you know, not only am I helping total strangers, but for me to really be able to make this impact in my own family and my friends and like my community is that is definitely when you know that you have something that is able to make an impact. Definitely. And it's humbling too. I mean, it's humbling because you consumed all this information and you were able to do it in a an unintimidating way so that you are approachable by, you know, your older siblings, which again, like, you know, the name of this podcast is no shame in this money game because there is so much shame because we feel like we should have found out about this already. We feel like we should have learned it. And really, like we talked about earlier, (laughs) no one's teaching us. So unless you get curious, which not everybody is as naturally curious or has the means or access or education or anything to consume this information and really learn it on their own like you have, you know, there's just so much shame. So it's such an amazing service that you've opened up to not just your family, but just this huge network of people and now nationally through NextGen Personal Finance, which is just amazing. A lot of parents and students are about to make college decisions right around this time of year. What is some advice that you would give them that you didn't know, of course, because you made all these decisions and and didn't know? (laughs) It's such a big topic and there's so many facets of it. But I think for me, I was very different from the average kid going to college in America. The average kid is realistically speaking, going to have to take out even just maybe one or two student loans because most Americans just don't have enough cash piled up to be able to pay out of pocket for the full cost of college. And not to mention that the cost of college tuition has been inflating insanely over the past 20, 30 years. And the livable wage line is actually not moving at all. Or I I don't even know if we can call it a livable wage, but, you know, minimum wage isn't really moving. And so what we're seeing is people are still making very similar amounts of money as to how much we were making 10, 20 years ago, but the cost of a home or the cost of college is way more expensive, relatively speaking. So I think the finances of it is something we just can't ignore. And so for me, what I've learned is as I started to reflect back on my experience in college, I was you know, using credit cards to finance my lifestyle. And a lot of my friends were using student loan money to finance their lifestyles. Now, I don't know which one is worse. I mean, credit cards are worse in the sense of the interest rate because they're so much more expensive as a type of debt because my interest rates were like 23, 24% interest, whereas a student loan might have been 5%, 6% interest back at that time. So in that sense, in purely a number sense, then it's better to use student loans rather than credit cards. But at the same time, if you have to file for bankruptcy, if anything happens in your life where you're really at a financial rock bottom, you can completely eliminate your credit card debt in a bankruptcy, but you can never eliminate your student loan debt. While you're in college, 
There is absolutely no reason why you can't begin to start making payments as small even as they might sound. $15 or $20 a month can make a huge difference over the four years of your tenure in college so that when you graduate, you only have to pay what you borrowed and you haven't been accruing interest during your tenure in college. Because what I noticed was happening with a lot of my friends is that they were like, oh yeah, I don't have to start making payments until six months after college graduation. Because that's the marketing and the the genius of the advertisement and marketing of student loans is that they convince you that it is a benefit to you to not start making payments until six months after graduation. And if you're a freshman, that means that you are waiting four and a half years before you ever make a first payment, which means that you are not even putting a dent in the amount of money you borrow in the debt that you have for four and a half years. Mind you, that entire time that you're not making any payments because you don't have to, interest definitely is accruing. It's not like just because you don't have to make payments doesn't mean they're not charging interest. They start charging interest day one, but they don't start charging you any fees or any, any, they don't collect any bills from you yet. Why? Because they want to benefit from that interest accruing for four and a half years. That means that when you graduate, you will owe significantly more money than you even borrowed in the first place. And that in and of itself is such a simple concept when you know about interest and how compounding interest fees work. But most people don't know those things. As simple as we might believe they are, they're not that simple if you haven't been taught how that all works. So most people sign for student loans and they're like, okay, I just borrowed $10,000. Okay, cool. When I graduate, I'll have to pay back $10,000. And this is the type of process in the mental process that happens generation after generation after generation, which is what has led to a student loan debt crisis. According to the Federal Reserve, the average student loan debt is $32,731, up 20% from 2015 and up 145% since 1971. This is indeed why student debt is referred to as the student loan crisis because most people didn't realize that when they graduated, that 10,000 was going to turn into 14,000 or 15,000. They had no idea. And then when they saw that number significantly higher than what they expected, the anger and the frustration and the sense of betrayal almost, like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you make it so clear to me in plain English that when I graduated, I was going to owe more than I borrowed? That simple fact could help so many people be empowered to log into their student loan portal freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, over the summer when you're working at the Gap or when you're working at, you know, you're doing an internship at a company. When you get those little checks, even if it's 200 bucks, take 15 bucks and make your payment in your student loan portal. Because if your interest fees are $15, guess what? You smash that interest every single month by sending 20 bucks. And so when you graduate, instead of owing 15000 when you initially borrowed 10000 you might owe back 9000 even though you borrowed 10000 And that is a small sigh of relief that can help you feel a bit more of a pinch of motivation so, so that you can start on the journey of getting that debt paid off at an average speed or maybe even at a faster rate than the average American takes to pay off their debt. But I think the reason why so many people are taking longer and longer and longer is because there's this frustration, there's this confusion and a sense of betrayal. And so people just set minimum payments. They set it to the bare minimum, whatever is the minimum, which means that they're paying off student loans for 30 years, you know, sometimes more, which is just insane. So, you know, in short, the message is log in to your accounts while you're in college and send 
every small bit helps. Every dollar helps to get rid of those interest fees that are accruing while you're in school. It's so devastating to be a 22-year-old whose choices are then limited because they did not know what they were getting into. I know you have this great relationship now with NextGen Personal Finance. You're still doing your YouTube channels, but you also have podcasts and some other great projects. So tell me more about what else you're up to. Yeah, so I actually started a podcast in April of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic or towards the beginning of it. It's called Mind Your Money with Miss Be Helpful. And in terms of what I've got else going on in 2021, my big, big goal was to have a book out in 2020 and then the pandemic hit. So we've shifted that goal over to 2021. But I am wrapping up a lot of my drafts for for a book, which is also going to be called Mind Your Money. And my goal is to have that ready by no later than the fall of 2021, which will be super exciting to be able to share a combination of my story, like my personal life, but also snippets of like lessons and tidbits of strategies and information that I've learned along the way. So it's more so like you're learning, but you're also being entertained by some of the stories that I have to share from like, you know, memories of, of growing up in an environment where we just, you just don't know about how money works and you just kind of make things up in your mind about how money works. So yeah, it's a combination of stories and strategies. And then finally, I'm really excited that recently I joined the CNBC Financial Wellness Council. And a lot of the work that we're doing in partnering with CNBC this year is really just getting more eyes in the media, getting attention and eyes on the issue of the lack of financial literacy in schools. And so my goal is to partner with them to host events, to get more social media hits, to get more like content, articles, videos. That's great. These projects, I will be looking out for the book, listening to the podcast, and checking out what you're up to at CNBC. So that is so great. Well, I could talk to you. You said you could talk a lot. Well, I could listen to you for hours because you just have so much information and such a fun way to get it across and perfect for this no shame zone where we really just want to learn as much as we can about money. So there is a gaming aspect, if you would call spinning a wheel kind of a game. So I'm going to spin a wheel here here and ask you a random question. So hold on one second. All right. If your life had a theme song right now, what would it be? Oh my goodness. If my life, you know, it's so funny. So full-time at my job, I, I work with personal finance education and teachers primarily and students, but talking about money and money management. And then when I'm not working on my full-time job, I'm working on Miss Me Helpful, which is a personal finance platform. So I feel like right now, everything is just like, I'm working so hard for the money. I would go with Donna Summers, like work. She works hard for the money. I'm talking about money, teaching money, working for money. It's all this money. That would be a good one and a classic. <laughs> yes, I had to go with the classic for sure. Oh, that's awesome. And then I do ask all my guests, since Rockland Trust is the bank where each relationship matters, if you could use one word to describe your relationship with money, what would it be and why? I love this question. I would say evolved. Because it just was, it's just so different now than where it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And I think people tend to believe they have like a lot of people have a fixed mindset about money. Like, oh, I'm just not good at money. I'm not good with saving. I'm not good at like, I don't know, you know, I can't control myself with credit cards. I don't understand the stock market. And it's like, why don't you take every one of those sentences and just add the word yet? I don't understand credit yet. I don't know how to invest in the stock market yet. I don't feel comfortable about my budget yet. Because there's room for growth and evolution, and I am a testament to that. I was a hot 
mess with money. I can't, I mean, there's no other word besides hot mess. I was just a mess. Like, you know, constantly getting hit with overdraft fees in my checking account, constantly being late with my credit card payments, you know, like just really not having a handle on my financial situation and all all aspects of it, not just my banking, but like, you know, credit and borrowing and understanding investing. Like, but I think you can just take it one step at a time. You know, it's just like eating a meal. You're not going to swallow the plate. You're going to take it one bite at a time. And over time, you really can evolve and totally transform your relationship with money. Perfectly said. And you are a living testament to that. So thank you so much for being so helpful, Miss Be Helpful, and (laughs) being on this podcast today. We look forward to following you, watching your YouTube, looking out for your book, and seeing your success five, ten years from now. Just thinking about what it could be is inspirational. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the No Shame in This Money Game podcast brought to you by Rockland Trust, member FDIC. My name is Julie Beckham, and yes, I do take requests. So be sure to email your personal finance questions and curiosities to me, your host and your educator at julie.beckham at rocklandtrust.com.